0: Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily on the Memphis Metropolis host. And this week, my guest is Dr. Megan Hatch, who's associate professor at Cleveland State University. And we're going to be talking about kind of a a little bit of a, I'll say kind of a, a little bit of a wonky policy topic. So, um, so Megan, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: the reason I invited you is just you're going to be, I think, in Memphis next week as a panelist at the State of Memphis Housing Summit, which is next Wednesday. And so if anyone's interested and attending that and the last time I went, which was a couple years ago, was excellent. They can find out more on the City of Memphis website. So, but I'm really excited to have you as a guest. I don't have that, most of my guests are local, but I love to have people who have outside perspectives when I have an opportunity. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. And uh, before we get, before we dive in, the topic of the day is uh, state preemption of local really, of local control and governance in the affordable housing arena. But tell us a little bit about you and your work at Cleveland State and how you got interested in this as sort of a research area.
1: So I study broadly policy variations within states or between states and the effects that that has on people and institutions. Predominantly, I study rental housing and then state preemption. And I got into this actually through Twitter. I met some co-authors through Twitter. We had a bunch of conversations about policy diffusion, which is the spread of policies across states and within states. And something that, especially at that time, we didn't know a lot about was preemption, And so that was something that we really, we wanted to know more about. What does it mean? What I can kind of see uh, maybe what is preemption, right? Like that's kind of a first question. So we've defined it as the use of coercive methods to substitute state priorities for local policymaking. So sort of in English, it's when the state says to the cities, you can't do this or to the counties, you can't do certain things. And we really wanted it's to in, know what
0: that is. It's interesting to use the word coercive because um, I haven't thought about it that way, but I guess it really is. It has had a huge impact on, you know, gun violence. And I know that it's, um, you know, frustrating for local governments not to be able to control that
1: more. Yes, guns are a big category across the nation. That's something that is often so, preempted. So, but, things like tobacco as well. Okay. Very, I was going
0: to ask you what some others before we talk about housing, what are some others, what are some other areas where you really see a lot of state laws that, that fly in the face of what local governments want? Tobacco, you mentioned.
1: So tobacco regulation and advertising, Advertising. the minimum wage is a very big one. Uh, kind of recently in the news, we've heard a lot about sanctuary cities and anti-discrimination laws in terms of uh, kind of the big one was HB 2 in North Carolina, the bathroom bill. So, uh, and I believe Tennessee also has a bathroom bill or has proposed it. So that's another right. common preemption. Forget that?
0: What about the um, access to abortion and things like that? Is that something you're seeing? Um, I don't know whether local governments have any, have the ability, any way to, to, to regulate that, if that's the right word?
1: That's a good question. I haven't seen anything about that, but I think it's such a new and developing policy area. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen, you know, over the next couple months as that changes.
0: So, So today we want to talk mainly about affordable housing and about how states can and do restrict local government's ability to provide more affordable housing, essentially. So Megan, what are the um, the kinds of areas that states like to intervene in in terms of affordable housing? And and I guess, are any more more relevant to Tennessee than others?
1: In one research project, my co-author and I looked at four different affordable housing preemptions and Tennessee has three of the four. So the one that Tennessee doesn't have is source of income discrimination. Uh, Source of income discrimination is essentially when uh, landlords can say, I won't rent to you because of where you get your money, generally a voucher or some sort of government services. So Tennessee does not have that. That's
0: not, I guess, one of the protected classes in the fair housing, the federal fair housing laws.
1: It's not officially, uh, there's some movement in the new HUD, uh, the housing and urban development to include it, but it's not, it's not part of a protected class. In some states it is, and in some cities and counties. Basically, local
0: governments would like, would like to say that's against the rules to discriminate. And the states in this, in in this case, the state would say it's perfectly fine to discriminate against people. Um, for in the form of income.
1: Yeah, the state probably wouldn't put it as it's okay to, to, to discriminate, but they would say you can't right, regulate of course, yes, that.
0: Yes, of course. That's the way they
1: would probably re- yeah Yeah, re- you're right about that. Then another one is short-term rentals. So think Airbnb and things like that. Ten states, including Tennessee, don't allow local governments to regulate short-term rentals.
0: Well, you know, we, pa- we passed, um, I know the local government passed an ordinance several years ago that was negotiated with Airbnb. So I guess subsequently the state preempted that, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know the details of what happened in Memphis. And sometimes these have uh, clauses that if it's already in place, it can stay, but no new regulation, okay. things like that.
0: Why would why would states the- not want, and I know I'm, I'm asking a question you, probably, you may not know the answer to, Why would states not want that to be regulated?
1: There's various theories, and I don't have any evidence to say for sure which it is, but I suspect it probably has to do with interest groups and groups like Airbnb and other short-term rental organizations not wanting that kind of regulations. That would be my hypothesis, but I I don't have lobbyists, in other words.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what's the fourth
1: area of preemption? The fourth is inclusionary zoning. So requiring in new developments to have below market rates or below market rate units or affordable housing. And that's something Tennessee has, 11 states have that sort of preemption.
0: Yeah, I don't think we've ever, I've always thought that would be very useful here. Um, We've never had that, um, an attempt to put in any kind of inclusionary zoning here.
1: Yeah, and some local governments do some, and I believe if I'm reading the Tennessee law correctly, uh, local governments can incentivize it. They just can't. Well, that's what it. that
0: is. What has happened here? There are in multifamily development. There are there is um there are some incentives for mul- the developers of multifamily housing to um that are available if you include a certain number of affordable units. And that uh, is relatively new. And it's been a big, a big, actually I think, I think it's been very useful, not so much it. I'm sure it's increased the affordable housing stock some, but it's really been um, been useful as a tool to stimulate development in some areas that needed it at the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the philosophy behind those of incentives.
0: So it looks like I I did read your paper that was um, is getting ready to be published, I guess, in urban studies. And I and if it's okay with you, I'll post a link to it in the show notes for the podcast version of this in case people want to look at it, because that really has to do specifically with these these. These affordable housing areas you're talking about. But you had a little graph in there that just looked like, had, you know, number of preemptions generally over the decades and looked like there had been a huge spike overall. Um, if I'm reading it right. And I guess, is that the case? And what do do you attribute that to?
1: Yeah, it seems that they're increasing over time. Affordable housing preemptions and also other types of preemptions seem to be increasing over time. There's a bunch of different theories why this might be the case. And what my colleagues and I argue is that you really have to look at the policy area. So uh, more generally, the common argument or belief is that preemptions are increasing because of partisanship and ideology. There's this idea, which isn't actually 100% true, that preemptions are about Republican states preempting their uh, Democratic cities. And that can happen, but there are preemptions where it's Democratic state legislatures that are also doing it. So it's not just a Republican-Democrat sort of divide. We, uh, there Another theory is that it's really about um, unified government. So if there's unified state government, they're more likely to pass preemptions. Wait, wait. There's stop. also.
0: So so. say that again, a unified state government.
1: Unified state government. So if both the Senate and the House and the governor are all okay. the same party, that that might be more likely okay. to pass preemptions because it's easier to move okay. these kind of policies around. Something we talked about earlier is lobbying and interest groups, and that seems, especially in some policy areas, for example, those tobacco and gun preemptions, those interest groups seem to have a big influence in this. And uh, another group, uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, they write model legislation, and they have some model legislation for preemptions, including for affordable housing preemptions, and that's a, a pro-business group that they will approach uh, pro-business legislators and ask them and work with them to introduce this type of legislation. So those are kind of the, the big reasons why we're seeing. And
0: it's event. not just it's not just Republican legislatures; it's Democrat, democratic as well.
1: Yes, it is. It's slightly more likely in the Republican legislatures, but we we do see it in democratic. Uh, legislatures as well.
0: So, um, you know, I have a background in community development and there's a, a huge emphasis on, and this, is an, this is, it's not always successful, but there's just a big emphasis on, you know, citizen participation in you know, in planning and policy making, and I would say that really extends now to our to our local government. The I feel like our local government does a really good job of, um, and a much better job than it used to, at engaging citizens in planning decisions. And you know, I think the idea is, you know, that of course the people who are most affected by policy change, if they don't actually, they're not actually deciders then they're going to be you know in a position to influence those decisions and these you know this these state preemptions generally just seem to really fly in the face of that and i guess how do how do legislators justify don't some of the citizens don't don't want these laws or want the ability to make their own to let their own local representatives make those decisions
1: This is one of my major concerns as well. It's something I teach in an urban studies department, and we spend a lot of time talking about how do you engage your citizens and things like that. So I I definitely have, on a personal level, this concern. What states generally justify it is along two main uh, arguments, the first being uniformity. And they say, well, if we preempt, then we make sure there are uniform policies across the state. And related is that they argue that these policies or these preemptions help with business equality, that if you set up the business regulations to be the same across the states, that helps with business development and economic development and things like that. And it's not, um, to to sort of jump back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, it's not a justification for these laws, but in terms of interest groups, if interest groups are trying to lobby for certain policies that they really like, it's easier for them to do that at the state level. It takes fewer resources to lobby the state versus every major city in the state. So they tend to concentrate their lobbying at the state level as well, which plays in
0: sort of even though I don't agree with it, I can sort of see that argument when it comes to business regulation. But things like, um, you know, guns and affordable housing, I mean, that doesn't seem, it seems less, I mean, like I said, I don't buy the argument anyway, but it seems less credible to me. And um, I see about the uniformity, but, but And I don't know if this is true of preemptions, but for sure, our state legislature passes laws that only affect a couple of places, including Memphis. And that is not uniformity where you say we're passing a law that only affects cities over a certain size. And that would be, you know, Memphis, Nashville, you know, potentially Chattanooga. So that happens. So that doesn't that flies in the face of the uniformity argument. But okay. Okay, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Dr. Megan Hatch, who's the associate professor at Cleveland State University. So in your research, um, I mean, you talked about some of the interest groups. I mean, what were some of the, um, you know, the factors that influenced these preemptions?
1: What we found for affordable housing is that more conservative legislatures, so not really party, but more conservative legislatures are more likely to pass these laws. And that's pretty consistent across all different types of policies. Uh, if the state legislature is more professionalized, so if, it's, uh, if they uh, are in session more and they have more of a staff, things like that, They're less likely to pass one of these preemptions. And then in terms of interest groups, we found two really interesting things. We really expected to see real estate interest group density to have a big effect on this because the real estate lobby is pretty powerful. So we thought if there's a lot of real estate industry and therefore real estate lobbyists, we'd expect more affordable housing preemptions. We didn't find that to be the case that that really wasn't a factor that influenced whether these laws were going to be uh, passed or not. But what we did find is that states with more renters were less likely to pass these laws. And that's really fascinating to me because it goes against a lot of the narrative that policies are elite-driven and it's these powerful lobbyists and things like that that affect policy. And what we found is renters who are generally thought of as not being as well organized as the real estate industry or the construction industry and who have less power overall, that actually did make a difference. And that's pretty fascinating.
0: I I guess that doesn't surprise me in places where they have a lot of, you know, renter's rights activities, which I'm guessing is probably in the, you know, in the major cities that have a lot of like the New York's and the, you know, Los Angeles places like that where renters are, are going to be, there's just more of them and are probably going to be more organized. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably that case. It's hard to, the way we did our analysis, we can't say, you know, it was renters in these states. Like that doesn't allow us to, we can't get at that. But overall, renters seem to decrease the likelihood of these. Branches.
0: So I know you're not a Memphis expert. Um, but what are some, are there some examples you can think of of, things Memphis and Shelby County might want to do that the state would try to preempt to increase the support of affordable increase the supply of affordable housing one of the things that has is ha- happened in Memphis over the decades is the is the that developing the so-called missing middle housing which I'll def- going to define in a minute so I don't ring the bell on myself is, um, it's going, that's really gone away. And so, so people that don't know, and I'm actually going to do a program on this in a couple of weeks, missile- missing middle housing is basically just, you know, duplexes and quads, for want of a better word. And our older neighborhoods, or, you know, small numbers of, um, you know, mixed in with single family homes, um, you know, units that have more, um, buildings that have more units, but are still relatively small scale. And in our older neighborhoods in Memphis, probably like a lot of cities, um, you know, they're full of them, my own neighborhood. I mean, there's quads, triplexes, there's some little infill buildings that are, you know, eight units and it's still got the look and feel of a, um, but it's very difficult for a variety of reasons to develop those now. And, um, and I know Memphis is trying at the state level to get some policy change to make that easier. It has to do with how those how those properties are taxed. And in some cases, it's an issue of zoning. I know some cities have eliminated, tried to eliminate single-family zoning completely for that reason. I don't know whether Memphis and Shelby County will go in that, but is that the kind of thing do you think that states could could and would try to preempt?
1: It could, absolutely. That single-family, getting rid of single-family zoning could be something uh, the we talked about inclusionary zoning things like that. That's something that states could preempt. What I would say is that there's ways to try to work within the the current uh, policy landscape. So we talked a little bit earlier about inclusionary zonings that they can incentivize without requiring. And so cities that are looking for to do to increase affordable housing but need to stay within. The confines of what the state allows them to do, things like that, to to have incentives or to work within the the spirit of the law is more is likely to not be preempted. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that that's the thing
0: I I can think of that um, as something that I know that our local leaders are are in favor of and trying to change, and I think have made some progress on it. The um, you know one of the interesting things. And you, you're, you, like I said, have not really studied Memphis, so you might not know this. But you know, until recently, there wasn't really an affordable housing supply problem here. Um, a lot of the, a lot, I'm talking about, you know, small a affordable, not subsidized housing. It wasn't really a supply problem. It the the bigger the bigger problem was that so much of the housing was in poor condition. And, um, but now, you know, Memphis has always just been a cheap place to live and, but that's changed along with, you know, the national housing trends, um, you know, as, as ownership units got more expensive, rents have really gone up a lot and people are just literally not being able to find a place they can afford for the first time. So I don't know how much work there's been done locally on the sort of on the supply side, but I think there probably needs to be
1: There's a lot of different things they can do. I think of it as on a spectrum from adhering completely to the law to completely ignoring and defying it. That uh, either side is probably not the best way. If you completely adhere to the law, then maybe you don't achieve your policy goals. If you completely ignore it, it's very likely that the city will get sued. And so there's a lot of things you can do in the middle. One of them is to test the legal limits or to try to circumvent the law. So something I did find, it's not affordable housing, but as I was reading about this uh, and maybe your uh, listeners are all very aware of this, but uh, a few years back in Memphis, Memphis requested the Tennessee historical commission for a waiver to the heritage protection act to remove two Confederate monuments and that waiver was denied. So what the city did was transferred ownership of the property yes. to a nonprofit, and then the nonprofit took down the the um, it was- monuments. The state did take away some funding for Memphis's bicentennial celebration, but they that was one way they kind of worked around it by giving the properties to a nonprofit. So those kind of workarounds are something that cities can do. Uh, there are some court cases as I mentioned, suing or um, some legislation, then sort of other things that cities can do, they can lobby the state government directly, which it sounds like Memphis has done in some cases. And then gaining citizen support seems to be a big thing in other, other states and other cities, Getting the citizens to lobby the state. Uh, I don't believe Tennessee has statewide ballot initiatives or referendums, but some states do. And so getting city support for those can help. And then media attention. We mentioned the, the bathroom bill in North Carolina, HB2, and that was partially overturned. And what folks often say the reason that was is because of the media attention and therefore the boycotts and stuff like that. So, getting that citizen and media groundswell support can also help.
0: I'm not seeing that kind of media support for housing issues, sadly.
1: Yeah, it's not as a flashy soundbite and area. Well, oh well, very
0: of course, of those course. Those I mean, arguably, you know, more important um, because the you know the hor- that that was horrible. The bathroom bill. Um, but it was, but it was a flashpoint. And, um, but, you know, the housing, you know, where people live, and, you know, the condition and the safety and the quality of housing is just, it's fundamental to, to people's lives. So, um, yeah, I'm not seeing, I can't imagine a situation so egregious, but maybe, um, you never know. So at the at the end of this urban affairs paper you talk, you kind of just mention that additional housing regulations at the federal level could potentially address some of these state preemptions. So explain that a little bit can can federal government preempt states. It seems like states are constantly suing the federal government for federal laws they don't like.
1: Yes. So the federal government can preempt states in certain areas. You know, the constitution sets out what each one can regulate and the courts have further defined that. So that can definitely happen. We talked about source of income discrimination earlier. Uh, For those uh, listeners who maybe jumped in a little bit later, source of income discrimination is where landlords won't rent to tenants because of where they get their income, often vouchers or uh, disability assistance or something like that. So that could become a protected class at the federal level. And if it was, if it was part of the federal fair housing protected classes, then it wouldn't matter. States couldn't preempt that because it would be at the federal level and that would be, uh, that would trump the state laws. So there are definitely things that the federal government could do. The challenge here is that the federal government can do that. But when we start talking about the importance of local governments responding to their local constituents, the more you have the federal government do, the even further they are from the local constituents. So there is a balance. And that's something that probably depends on the policy area and what it is, whether it's better for the federal government to just regulate it, or if it still needs to stay with the states and the local Yeah,
0: I hear what you're saying, because it is one step removed. I mean, I want the federal government to intervene because I want them to Uphold my particular beliefs, um, but you're right. It's one step extra. I mean, I, th- I think of the, I think of the there being friction, especially as it relates to fair housing, which you, which you brought up, which is you know a, really a package of laws to prevent housing discrimination, and on a, for a variety of reasons. And it seems like the during the Obama administration there was some stepped up enforcement of that that some of the state and local governments took exception to.
1: Yes, and I my understanding is that the Biden administration is returning to a lot of those policies, so we might see that again. Well,
0: of the of the of, sort of the, um the four types of preemptions we talked about at the beginning, are there any, I mean, obviously source of income discrimination that would lend itself to federal regulation um and I mean, would, I mean, it seems like a lot of these things are dictated by local real estate markets. For example, rent controls. Would, is that something that you, that you, that it would be appropriate? I mean, in your opinion, obviously, it would be appropriate for the federal government to take on, or is that just not make sense because those things have to respond to, you know, to local markets?
1: I think some of them do need to respond to local markets. I think politically it would be infeasible to imagine a federal rent control. I just don't see that happening ever because I think it's just too politically and even academically controversial. There are some inclusionaries, there are specific development programs that do have inclusionary zoning or, you know, affordable housing built into those programs. And I think that's something that the federal government does regulate and can regulate. But once again, I can't imagine it being politically feasible. that The federal government would ever say every single development needs 20% affordable housing. Maybe incentives is
0: sort of the way to go, like we talked about. And I guess in some cases... The, the federal government, if, if it did put its toe in the water, would probably do, you know, enabling legislation of some kind, allowing states and local governments to opt in for things. Okay, so so Megan, last question. So what are you, uh, I mean, we, we talked about a lot, but any sort of high points of your, what you're going to be talking about in your panel next week that we haven't talked
1: about One thing I want to emphasize is we've talked a lot about the negative sides of preemption, but there are good sides to preemption. And and preemption isn't inherently good or bad. We didn't really get into it, but there were a lot of preemptions during COVID, actually a slightly different type of preemption. We've been talking mostly about preemption through the legislature, but during COVID there were preemptions from the executive, through the governors. And some of those preemptions. They kind of went both ways. There were some that said, for example, um, cities cannot require more math or they can't require masks. But then there were also some that said, this is the minimum health standard and cities can do more. And so some of those from a public health perspective were good because they set up a uniform, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and you can do more. So preemptions aren't necessarily all bad or all that they are restricting local governments but sometimes for reasons depending on your personal views of these things that are actually important so I think just for your listeners to understand that these are all different types of policy issues and can go in different ways so
0: are well. there I, I hear what you're saying I hear what you're saying although in the in the covid case we did have governors saying you know cities you cannot require, Masks, and um, I would consider that to be negative. I mean, yes, I mean if 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 the if the state said, you know, there's here's a minimum standard everyone's going to adhere to. I I get that. I'm I'm just I'm just and and you're right. We've been talking about a lot of negative, but I'm but I'm trying to think about how preemption could be positive. I guess it depends on your perspective on different issues. I mean, if the if the state yeah, if the right. state I mean I, I'm you know a liberal like if the state said you know if the state cracked down on guns I'd be all for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that. There's some, you know, uh, back in the the 90s, there were some preemptions about tobacco and you know, tobacco advertising and things like that. That uh, if you believe from a public health perspective that we shouldn't be advertising or encouraging tobacco use, then those were quite positive for public health. Yeah, as well.
0: I can, like I said, I can, I can see it depends on your particular lens. So, okay, that's right. interesting. I'm glad you, I'm glad you flagged that to give some balance to the discussion. Well, this has been super interesting. I hope that, um, you know, whatever Memphis and Shelby County want to do on the on the affordable housing side is not, um, you know, preempted by the state because it's you know, it's it's something that needs to be addressed for sure in terms of quantity. And there's there's um just to sort of digress for a second. Like I know that we advocates here have proposed things like you know landlord registries. We have a big problem with code enforcement, and you know of abs- we have a lot of out of town property owners. Like a lot of cities, you know, Wall Street firms have come in and acquired thousands of rental houses. And there's, you know, there's code enforcement issues with a lot of those. And so there's been a push for like rental registration. And um, so, so every property has to have a local contact person, but that seems like something that could be preempted at the state level.
1: I'll put in a plug for the state of Memphis housing summit next week as well. One of my co-panelists is going to be talking about that specifically. So uh, definitely if, Folks are able to make that. I I highly recommend it because I think that is an interesting, there are plenty of places that have rental registries. Uh, We have one in my suburb, there's Cleveland has one and they're using it to help address the lead problem. So once you know who the landlords are, then you can start addressing some of these housing quality issues. So that's something that I know a lot of jurisdictions are thinking about and something that potentially the state could preempt so that's something that maybe you know the the public support needs to be there or the lobbying there so definitely well, I you know
0: that. in the past involved in local efforts um and there's been a lot of there was a lot of pushback and lobbying by local apartment owners and developers And, you know, the old, oh, the only people that are going to register are the good guys and the bad guys won't bother to register. So you're wasting your time and, you know, sort of the usual. So there was a lot of, we were never able to get traction on that. There was a lot of opposition to it locally. And, um, but I would love to see something like that happen. Okay. Yeah. Everyone attend the Affordable Housing Summit, the, the State of Memphis Housing Summit next Wednesday and I'll put some information on how to register in the show notes of the podcast version of this. So, okay, I've been talking to Dr. Megan Hatch, Associate Professor in Urban Studies at Cleveland State University. Thank you. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station, lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to part two of Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And my guest for this part of the show is Austin Harrison, who's one of my regular commentators, especially in the affordable housing arena. Um, but you haven't been on in a while, Austin, because I know you've been busy and just been kind of crazy, but welcome back.
2: Thank you, so excited to be here. Always love. So
0: um, so in the first half of the show, um, my guest was Dr. Megan Hatch, who's associate professor at Cleveland State University in the urban studies uh, program there. And I, wa- I wanted, you know, she, we were talking really about how state legislatures really preempt the work uh, policy making at the local level in a whole bunch of ways. And I want to talk a little bit more about that, but, you know, the reason for her visit really was because, well, the reason we invited her on Memphis Metropolis is because, you know, she's going to be here next week for, um, for a, a meeting that the division of housing community development at the city convenes periodically called the state of Memphis housing. And so that's what I wanted to ask you first. And I'd like to do you to come back and do a whole program on this, but just what is the state of Memphis housing right now, especially um, in terms of affordable, affordable housing?
2: Well, um, I, I often say, you know, you don't you don't really need to need a weatherman to tell you when it's raining outside, right? And I don't think you need uh, any sort of so called expert to tell you when we're in the midst of. A real housing challenge. Uh, I would I would classify it as a crisis. I don't use that term lightly. Um, I think we're seeing uh, you know for a while it was it was already kind of near crisis status when we were losing affordable housing. And I'm you know qualifying that as quality affordable. I, I kind of use your terminology, the capital A. But that lower ksa and how dangerous and unsafe that is that's getting worse right and we're losing the tools to to stop that kind of drain from quality livable affordable houses at the bottom of the market um and then we also have now we're getting more pressure at the top right interest rates have kind of you know leveled off some of the growth but where those values stopped is you know you take an orange mound for example they were you could buy a home for 20 25 those same homes are now worth 100 and hundred they're not going down right they're staying stagnant so we're seeing a lot of home values at the top of the market get more expensive, specifically in urban working class communities inside the loop. Um, so so I, I think we're, we're really facing a, a big challenge and, and problems that have been with us. It's not like, oh, now that we're getting that you know market pressure, a lot of people thought that market pressure would take care of some of our vacant stocks. But the reality is the market is only going maybe a block or two or out on the fringes of where it already was. So your new Chicago's, your Hyde parks, your, um, your Riverview, Kansases, your, um, you know, your, your North and South Memphis's are, are continuing to be, you know, filled with vacant properties, right? So we step, we have a stagnant vacancy rate. We're losing vacant. Uh, we're losing quality housing at the top and the bottom of the market from affordability standpoint. And we have a state government that are, is ma- are making active decisions that are making it harder to solve these problems, not just from preemption, but they're also passing policies that are making it more difficult to hold owners accountable, right? I've, last General Assembly, we had a, a law passed that would allow the assessor to redact ownership names. I think I mentioned that on the show before. So that's that makes hey, wait, it harder so, to track so these folks. So slow down more. for a second,
0: because I want to talk about, that's all right, all right. right. All right. Um, I, get, I get excited too. And then, but I, wanna, the, so, so, I just so want to talk down. about, because I think um, my conversation with Megan, you know, we we really she's not a local subject matter expert. I thought we did. We talked mm-hmm. about how preemption works and then why, what her research shows the reason. Um, but so lay out some of the ways that the, 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 our state government is impacting um, our local affordable housing. Situation, for want of a better word, um, either things they have done or they're threatening to do. And you talked the first one you talked about. I was not familiar with about um, about the assessor. So, who is the assessor, and, and why would this change be important?
2: Yeah, so, so our Shelby County assessor uh, is Melvin Burgess, has been for the last four years, uh, won re-election in, in this past year. So he'll be he'll be in that role for the next four years. And the role of the assessor is to appraise and assess a property. And then they also release a lot of information around who owns property, when it changes hands, sales occurs. Um, and so they're ultimately in charge of a lot of property-related data. And one of the, the main uh, key aspects of holding owners accountable is knowing who they are, where they are. Uh, are they local? Are I they use that town? all the are time. You time? Using up properties. Who owns who all owns this property anyway? Who owns this property? Who's responsible for it? Right? We live in a property rights system. The person who owns the property is responsible for what's going on there. Who is that? And and how and how does that how does that relate to uh to some of the issues we're seeing? And so the the state legislature last year already passed. A piece of legislation that would allow for owners to redact their name. So they can apply to the county assessor and they could say, I would like my name redacted from the owner sheet. So when you and I go try to see who owns this, it's going to say owner redacted. And it may not even have address information. It will be uh, virtually impossible for us uh, to to get a, a grasp under who is responsible. And that could have repercussions. I don't know if that law, if the details of that law, you know, this is. This is where I kind of reach them into my expertise, not a legal expert. So I'm not sure if the details of that law extend to the city, if, the, if this would make it hard for code enforcement. I know code enforcement already struggles to hold folks accountable um, and find the right owner and find who's in charge. And so that that process could get harder. It certainly makes it more difficult uh, for a rental registry alternatives to a rental registry have have been proposed to be more data driven and use information we have that's a big data set. And a big a really important piece of information that we would no longer have access to so so that that seems like a really small thing, but it has you know it's very pointed and it's clear that I think the biggest thing for everyone to remember is that at the state level, there are people that are that that's in their self-interest for the, the status quo to remain the same and for the, the the issues that are there to remain the same and they're working very hard to not only keep things the same through preemption but also push it more to their favor right and and so you see that with this is this is clearly something that was generated by the real estate investment community so the
0: um okay so that's bad
2: um this
0: this redacting of owner names. So what else? What are some, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, that information would be very useful if Memphis and Shelby County wanted to keep up with who owned rental property for the purposes of holding owners accountable. I mean, that would be a big deal. So what are some other yeah. ways the state um, you think has been a negative influence in this area?
2: Yeah, you you and Megan touched on this one, um, so I won't spend too much time on it because I want folks to come to the session. But we will have uh, a housing policy lobbyist, uh, someone you're familiar with, Emily uh, Beth Flanagan, who's been doing this for a while. The whole goal of the summit is to put practitioners in conversation with Dr. Hatch and other research experts. And so they're going to talk a lot about this rental registry piece. But I think it's important for listeners to understand You'll get a lot more information at the summit but it's important for listeners to understand the way it was done right uh, dr has mentioned there are a lot of different um, different strategies and they specifically said that at the state level the uniform Res- Res- residential landlord tenant act is going to become the supreme document right so it's, it's something that folks will call super preemption right not only are we Wanting to say this rental registry thing, which would put an additional burden on the landlords. And you can make the legal case that that would put it in conflict with the Uralta, right? Because it's something that Uralta doesn't say landlord has to do, that the city of Memphis wouldn't say. Wait, Uralta,
0: is that what you just defined?
2: Yeah, you got the I bell do. there. Yeah, the, uni- yeah, the uniform residential, is it's residential crazy tenant. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll define <laughs> it in, in a little uh, in a little more detail. Uniform residential landlord tenant act. This is the this is the supreme document that got that garners leases and requirements for landlord tenant law in the state of Tennessee. Um, it's based on a model legislation, but written in a pretty pretty landlord friendly way. In that you know you need access to legal counsel to really access a lot of parts of it but but right now as as it's written they they passed preemption that said it is it is going to be the the supreme document and cities can't this is sort of that super preemption this is another jargon right so you can preempt something by saying you can't do xyz but you can also say This is the this is the the, the overarching and whatever you try to do right now or in the future, you can imagine how that takes a lot of other policy options off the table in the rental space, which now, you know, the city of Memphis and Shelby County is a majority rental market. So we want to regulate that market more. People are living in substandard housing conditions and getting sick and getting asthma and getting lead poisoning and getting exposure to, to asbestos and other uh, chemicals, environmental health issues that are making it harder for students to focus in class. It's making it, you know, sending folks to the hospital and, and to, to healthcare uh, more seriously. And so, and this is within their home, right? This is the space that's supposed to be a safe, secure place that you can escape all of that stuff, right? And, and that's harder to do for a lot of working class families And the state of Tennessee is actively trying to make it harder. And, and I understand there's a double-sidedism here, but if we're gonna ground this in Memphis, it's one sided <laughs> we are i want listeners to understand that the reason it's so easy for preemption to occur is the republican party has a majority to the point where they can they can run the entire legislature every committee can meet they can have quorum and committee meetings they can that it's not only is it just the governor the state of the house and the senate they have so many republicans throughout the state the way we've drawn our districts memphis has such little representation that memphis can Fight this, but they can simply ignore them because they have so much of a majority that that it doesn't really matter what what we're saying. So 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 I think we're talking about the eroding of democracy. as I think how we really need to frame this, right? Like we're these are things that are hurting our democratic process in in a democratic country. Well,
0: you would think that um, I mean, one of the things that's I've heard about the legislature, and this is definitely true that it's dominated by you know rural interests but there's, um, and at the expense of, you know, the urban areas, but the, you know, the rural Tennessee is full of substandard property and uh, horrible rental quality rental housing and, you know, manufactured manufactured housing that people shouldn't be living in. Like why, why um, I would think there would be more, um, of course, setting politics aside, I think there'd be more support, everywhere for the ability to um,
2: be able to hold property owners accountable. Yeah. I, so, so I think this is, this is why I kind of frame it in democracy. And again, it's, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about democratic process, right? One, every individual has the same amount of influence. And the reality is the way we've allowed special interest groups. And this is, you guys mentioned this variety of topics, right? We could talk about gun control. We could talk about, you know, you can insert a variety of, of topics where people individuals agree, right, people who are living in substandard housing and in rural parts of, you know, Tennessee are going to be as advocate, they want better housing conditions as well, just like urban residents. But you have special interest groups that are targeting the state. And, and, um, you know, Dr. Hatch mentioned this in, in your earlier presentation, right, that there's this, there are groups that are, you know, specifically taking model legislation from something like an Alec, from you know something that uh, shares you know best practices around ways oh, to prevent best practices, uh, not bad, not, bet, right? not yeah. bets,
0: <laughs> worst practices to us. <laughs>
2: we're, we're, yeah, yeah, exactly. Worst practice. The best way to prevent people from solving their own problems. That's what we're talking about. Because we're, we're we're prioritizing our state is prioritizing capital interests. They're prioritizing investment. They're prioritizing real estate over the needs of the people. And that and that's not. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I know that may sound really political, but I'm really just saying that that's, this is an American problem, right? That we're seeing this all over the country. We're seeing this at the national level where well, there's a reason we haven't been able to pass common gun sense law, even though Republicans and Democrats both agree that that there are some things we could do. It's because the NRA has has a really strong, well-oiled machine that's been preventing that, right? And there are similar uh, interest groups that have Nashville, they've had Nashville figured out, they understand what's going on. And when you have, um, you know, lobbyists like, like Beth and others that are trying to, to disrupt this and just present some new ways of thinking things, it, it, it's hard to get gain, gain the support you need to push something out of committee and to push something through. through the yeah, office.
0: I get it. I don't know how many trips I made to Nashville with Web Brewer um, about to fight the predatory lenders, the you know the title lenders and the payday lenders, and um, just as one example of um, another kind of institution that just really damages communities. And that special interest is, um, I think, contributes more to legislative campaigns in the state than almost any other. And I can only imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you something, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but in, in previous programs, we have talked about the large national companies, really with money from Wall Street coming in and buying up you know, thousands of homes. Um, are those... Um, are those entities or their representatives among who is lobbying in the state legislature against some of these um, really transparency issues as it comes to housing?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And they're not just doing it in Tennessee. Right. Because they're operating at a scale. So I'm actually working. I know you've asked this question at a really good time. I've been working on a paper for a while. Um, with with my advisor, um, Dr. Emmerich Gluck, and, and we've been looking at uh, we've been looking at who owns property in Tennessee and, and whether the in Memphis specifically and whether over time they're they're investing in a condition right. We're looking to see how property condition is related to ownership. So I've gotten into the, the weeds of this and I've looked to see who are the Wall Street traded uh, companies, uh, IPOs and, and and public trusts and pension funds and hedge funds that are owning you know hundreds and thousands of. Uh, properties. And and I will, um, we can maybe, I can send you this link so you can drop it in the show notes or make it available. But MLK50 did a really, really good article, Jacob Steimer, a few months ago on Prager Financial, one of the big actors that have bought a lot from Cerberus who had a Washington Post article written about them and their work in Memphis specifically in 2018. Cerberus, after that, getting that bad press, they sold a lot of their Memphis st- portfolio to Prager and tenants are saying Cerberus was bad, Prager's worse, right? And there's stories of leaky roofs and and flooding rents. I mean, I'll be flooding apartments. And, and so, but go back to your question, all those groups are, they have a financial interest to continue and to take it further. They chose Tennessee and they chose the South because we don't have the regulations on rents and tenant protections. And like this was a conscious decision. They're in Tennessee, they're in Georgia, they're in Louisiana, they're in Texas. Tell me something that, that combines all of those states together, right? They have state legislators that are pr- proposing and, and fighting against more regulation. And so the, the lack of regulation in the state is the reason you see them more active. Now, of course, they've gotten a scale where they're working in Minneapolis, they're working in you know Cleveland, and they're working all over the country, but they chose the South first after the foreclosure crisis because we didn't have these protections in place. So so they're definitely going to be like, they came in and they started getting very involved, state legislators across the board, and there are a variety of investor um, trade groups and trade associations and, and real estate uh, financial special interest coalitions that are supporting it. And, you know, um, you know, I mean, there are, you know, there are real estate groups as well, real, real estate brokers that are also, um, you know, So I guess we were the future. proverbial low hanging fruit and, and they were able to start getting yields at like 10, 15% and, and even more, you know, 20%. They're making money on the cash flow. They're making money with the property appreciates. They're making money on the sales, right? I mean, this, they're making tons. This is, you know, subprime mortgage crisis level, Returns right, and so th- so it's building up this kind of an industry that's going to end up being too big to fail, right? If if it continues to go. The okay, way.
0: that's um. So so the um you know Megan's article um I mean her research showed that um, but she looked at a number of factors that would um increase the chance of preemption. And, um, you know, one of the factors was, you know, the presence of rental advocates and then the, you know, the makeup of the, you know, the makeup of the legislature, you know, was a conservative or not. And, and, um, but, but one of the, if she, they didn't look at race and which I realized would be probably be a whole area of research, but you know, in Memphis, people feel like, um, I think Memphis in general feels, you know, shafted by the state government um, on a variety of levels. Like they don't, they'd they like just to cut us off and set us loose. And I think a lot of people feel like, you know, race has part of that. Race is part of that, not t- it talking about housing, just housing, but really, you know, preemption generally. And I know you haven't researched this, but what do you think about that? Do you think, do you think, you know, race is a factor in these
2: decisions that seem to negatively affect cities, but especially Memphis? Yeah, I, I would take it a step further. I wouldn't just name it as a factor. I would name it as, or, or, or an element or an aspect. I would name it as a structuring source. I, I think race, cause it's not just, and I'm not just looking at Memphis and Tennessee, I'm looking at the way the Michigan state Legislator treats Detroit, another majority black city. I'm looking at the way the Louisiana state legislator treats new Orleans, another majority black city, right uh, across the country. And there's been a lot of other research and I, and I haven't done it myself, but I've read a lot of work done by folks like Jason Hackworth. He wrote a book called manufactured decline that talked about the way that the, the Republican party used specifically suburbs around majority black cities. If you look at, you know, the the voter base for George Wallace in 68, right, it was like suburban Cleveland, suburban Detroit, right? And so there's race is playing a structuring force in a lot of these decisions in state legislators. And I think you can't talk about real estate in America and the, and the market value we place on real estate in America without discussing race based on the history and based on, the, you know, from FHA loans, redlining to, um, you know, restricted covenants in the early 1900s, I mean, there are property deeds in Memphis that on the back of them, when they were written in 1920, said non-white individuals cannot own this property, right? And we've outlawed that since the 1920s. But that foundational reality is what I teach a lot of my class, that foundational reality of the real estate market has continued to be a story of how do we keep those structures in place? While maybe making them more and more subversive. And so now you're seeing the way that finance subprime mortgage crisis that was targeted to black and brown communities. That's what was proven. Yeah. And in the lawsuits and the work out there, the legislator made that made that known. We sued Wells Fargo for that exact reason. And we won. Right. Like like we've proven this subprime. Mor- and now if you look at where these investors are going, they're going to Frazier. They're going to Whitehaven. They're going they're, they're targeting black, black and brown neighborhoods. And it's and I'm not. I promise I'm not being subjective. I'm really passionate about this, so it may seem that way, but this is, this is the data. I'm just looking at the numbers, and I'm, and I'm seeing a story that is really, really hard to, to not say is not only based in race, but it's structured by race.
0: This is very sobering.
2: Well, can, can, I, can, can I get hopeful really quick? Because I, I like to subscribe to this idea of, of critical holiness, Please. right? The numbers are in our favor. Memphis, Nashville, Chattanooga, and Knoxville have the people power, just the sheer number of individuals more than the rest of the state. So I, I still believe that if enough people get together around a common cause and a common set of causes, we can do something in the democratic society. And I think the benefit is Nashville and Chattanooga, Knoxville, Jackson, other cities are, are, are feeling this the same heat and the rural community. You mentioned even rural Tennessee is, is seeing this, like it's becoming harder and harder to be working class regardless of race, but race is structuring. Uh, a lot of these decisions, and it's hurting a lot of other working-class folks. And so, I still think there are more people that could benefit from changing this. And I think it's just about having those honest conversations and creating dialogues where we can build a coalition to ultimately change this. Because the people that are, you know, in in the rental living in, in these hard situations vastly outnumber the interest groups that are working the the system to to support. Well, in
0: terms of the numbers of people, but not necessarily the numbers of dollars.
2: No, 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 no. No, that's right. But but that's what I said. I I think people power beats dollars if it's if if we if we do it the right way. And I think that's been shown in America. Right. I think you can look to other social actions, other um, movements, uh, working class people movements. It
0: has. It has. I think I'm glad you're optimistic. I'd like
2: I'd like what I'd say critical in that I, I see it. But I still, at the end, come away hopeful that that the people get we can come together. Yeah, really.
0: I, I'm I, I'm I hope you're right. Um, I mentioned all those trips to Nashville, and you know that was over several years, and it was just really discouraging. I mean, at some point, I just said, you know what, I give up. This is not. And of course, we we didn't have a statewide. I mean, that we had advocates from around the state, um, and um, that's a hard issue to organize around. Um, because yeah. it has to do with people's personal yeah. finances, and it's a hard issue to organize around. But, but um, I'm glad you're hopeful, and and I hope it's contagious because I need a little bit of that hope, hopefulness right now. Okay, well, um, I've been talking to Austin Harrison, who I, I didn't mention early on. is an assistant professor in the urban studies department at. Rose College and one of our regular commentators. So, thank you so much for coming on the program and look forward to having you on again soon. I feel like we just scratched the surface on some of this. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and um, WYXR 91.7 FM. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.